Hello there and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from a new angle, the Byzantine angle. What's interesting about that? Well, Byzantium is a bit of a forgotten empire, but I've always been fascinated with its history and how when it comes to the Crusades, I think it was the real cause of why they happened. So this is the third episode in a mini-series which looks at the Battle of Manticurt in 1071 when the Byzantines were routed by the Seljuk Turks. I think that battle was a real game-changer and it was actually the key reason why the Crusades happened. Last episode we looked at the problems Byzantium was having in the 11th century. Now let's have a look at what was going to become their very biggest problem of all, the Seljuk Turks. Like last time, I'm going to read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019. So let's go. Hope you enjoy it. Just as the Western Roman Empire had crumbled 600 years earlier beneath wave after wave of barbarian invaders, so Byzantium in the 11th century faced a seemingly endless onslaught of barbarians battering at its gates. Indeed, so many new enemies appeared out of nowhere in the 1040s to 60s that many pious Byzantines were convinced God was punishing them. Portents of doom were superstitiously seen everywhere from a major earthquake in 1063, which damaged the Byzantine cities of Antioch and Nicaea, to the appearance of Halley's Comet in 1066. What was really happening was that the empire was being buffeted by the migrations of several nomadic tribes from the Central Asian steppe lands. They were all of Turkish descent and all of them ultimately came from the east. The first onslaught struck at Byzantium's northwestern frontier. In the winter of 1046-7, the Pechenegs, one of several Turkish tribes, poured across the frozen Danube in their thousands, and during the years up to 1053, they fought a fierce and costly war with the Byzantines, eventually ending in a peace treaty that allowed them to settle in Byzantine territory in modern-day Bulgaria. In 1065, a powerful force of Ogres Turks, similar to their Seljuk cousins and more formidable warriors than the Pechenegs, also crossed the Danube. They were resisted by both Byzantine and Pecheneg forces, but nevertheless succeeded in ravaging most of the Balkans up to the great Byzantine walled city of Thessalonica in northern Greece. Fortunately for the Byzantines, the Oghuz Turks fell prey to a devastating plague and fled back north across the Danube. In Italy, things also went from bad to worse. In the 1040s, the Normans had started to wrest control of southern Italy from the Byzantines. The Normans are usually associated with northern Europe, in particular their conquest of Saxon England in 1066, but a group of Norman adventurers had joined the Byzantine army in the 1030s to fight against the Arabs, only to revolt against their paymasters and set up their own principality in Apulia. The Normans had a particularly effective cavalry charge. Frequently described by Byzantine sources, this was used to devastating effect on all of their opponents. 
Indeed, it would be no exaggeration to say that it was the medieval equivalent of the German Blitzkrieg in the Second World War and would later be a major contributor to the success of the First Crusade. By 1067, when Romanus stood trial, the Normans had reduced Byzantine territory in Italy to its last stronghold at Bari. But the greatest threat came from the east, and it was from an enemy that had developed one of the most paradoxical empires in history, the empire of the Seljuk Turks. The origins of Seljuk power lie with the charismatic ability of a man called Seljuk, who rose to prominence in the late 10th century. He was an Oghuz Turk, and at that time, the Oghuz Turks were a group of nomads living around the Volga River. Originally coming from Mongolia, the homeland of all the steppe nomads, the Turks were ethnically similar to the Huns of the late Roman period and the future Mongols of the 13th century. All of these steppe nomads essentially shared a similar ethnicity and culture, separated only by the different ages they lived in. The first mention of Seljuk comes in the late 10th century when he led a group of Oghuz Turks east into modern-day Kazakhstan, fleeing from his masters, the Khazars. Entering a Muslim-ruled area, he converted to Islam. Although we know very little about him, he must have had a charismatic style of leadership, for he was conspicuously successful in attracting other Oghuz Turks to join his clan and persuading them to convert to Islam, so much so that contemporaries started to call the growing number of Oghuz Turks who converted to Islam Turkmen, the term that historians also use to refer to them. This distinguished them from the rest of the Oghuz Turks. Ironically, it was defeat that first put the Seljuks on the path to victory. In 1034, Seljuks' grandsons Tugrul and Chagri, who ruled jointly, Seljuk himself died around 1009, were defeated by the Karakhanids, another Turkish nomadic dynasty. The Seljuks fled south into the Ghaznavid Empire, which was an Islamic Persian state in modern Iran. It was there that they found the secret of their success. This was to rule by means of what amounted to a mafia-style protection racket. In other words, the Seljuks would normally take control of cities by making them pay protection money rather than installing their own government and rulers. They could do this because of their extreme mobility. Seljuk warriors could appear out of nowhere, having travelled hundreds of miles in a matter of days on their tireless ponies. For the Seljuks were the masters of light cavalry warfare, wearing little body armour and carrying a short, normally slightly curved sabre and sometimes a javelin, the Turkmen warriors relied on their powerful bows. The Turkish bow was beautifully built, recurved in shape and constructed in three parts, a thin central stave of wood laminated with sinew on the back and horn on the underside. 
This composite construction was designed for power and speed, with the warrior able to use the recurved shape for a powerful draw, repeated quickly and aimed in any direction. According to a Byzantine source, when a Seljuk warrior shot his arrow, quote, the arrow in its course strikes either rider or horse, fired with such a tremendous force that it passes clean through the body, end of quote. Equestrian skills were paramount. The Seljuks rode with a short stirrup, which allowed them to put the rider's weight over the horse's shoulder instead of squarely on its back. This gave them better control for archery and facilitated their style of hit-and-run fighting. Seljuk warriors hovered within bowshot of their enemy, peppering them with arrows, and when charged, they would take flight, firing arrows backwards in the style called the Parthian shot by the Romans. They would continue these tactics until their enemy was so worn down that they could charge home with their sabres. If no such opportunity presented itself, they would continue to harass their enemy for days without offering battle, waiting for a suitable ambush or making surprise attacks on the enemy's camp or outposts. In contrast, the Ghaznavid army used heavily armoured troops, even including elephants, a strategy copied from their Indian neighbours. This type of army proved far too slow to pursue and confront the Seljuk warbands. The Ghaznavids had little experience of steppe nomad warfare and exhausted Ghaznavid armies crisscrossed Khurasan, vainly trying to pin down the Seljuks to a pitched battle. Yet, in order to win battles, the Turkmen had to fight at close quarters at some point. Finally, in 1040, this happened at the Battle of Dandankan. Chagri, the main Seljuk leader, chose the timing of his attack with typical Seljuk cunning, waiting until the Ghaznavid army was actually locked in a quarrel between its own soldiers over access to a water well in order to ambush and completely rout them. The Ghaznavid Sultan Masud was killed as he fled, and the Seljuks took over complete control of the Ghaznavid Empire. Next was Western Iran, while the Seljuks at this time had two leaders, Tugril and Chagri. It was Tugril who rose to prominence by conquering Western Iran and Iraq, leaving Chagri in charge of the east. Tugril's invasion of Iran used the same formula that had worked so well against the Ghaznavids. He led his growing hordes of nomadic Turkmen to force cities to pledge allegiance in return for their protection. The Iranian political infrastructure was too fragmented to be able to offer effective resistance, consisting of a multitude of principalities nominally subject to the ethnically Iranian Buyid dynasty, dynasty, but in fact self-governing and often in conflict with each other. The Seljuk method of government suited them reasonably well, since once these local Iranian and Kurdish princes had sworn their allegiance to the Seljuks, they were left alone. In this way, the Seljuks allowed 
the underlying political infrastructures in Iran and Iraq to remain largely intact. But the interaction between the primitive Turkmen and the sophisticated Muslim populations living in Iran and Iraq was still tense and difficult. The latter normally ended up paying taxes or tribute in order to continue their lives undisturbed, and while the Turks brought large numbers of livestock with them to boost the local economies by providing milk, meat and wool, there is little doubt that the local populations regarded them with fear and trepidation. Tugril knew he couldn't allow this style of rule in Iraq, the heartland of Islam, without provoking a more formidable resistance. So he tried to ensure that the Turkmen behaved with respect for the local population by giving them, the Turkmen, what they wanted, which was grazing land for their flocks and the protection money he extorted from the local populations. This worked well, and soon Tugril arrived with his hordes of Turkmen before the gates of Baghdad itself, the great holy city and seat of the Sunni Abbasid Caliph. There, the fragmented political situation in Iraq continued to favour him. The long-standing Sunni Abbasid Caliph al-Qaim disliked the weak rule of the Shiite Buyids, Tugril took full advantage of these internal divisions when he threatened to take Baghdad by force and the caliph persuaded the Buyid forces to flee the city. He entered it peacefully in 1055 and was proclaimed sultan by the caliph. The Seljuks had come of age. But they had a new enemy to face. This was the powerful Fatimid caliphate based in Egypt. The Fatimids were Arabs, originally from Algeria, who had extended their dominion eastward, conquering Tunisia, Libya, Egypt and the Levant in the 10th century. Not only were they the only other major Muslim power opposed to the Seljuks, but they were also Shia, so doctrinally opposed to the Sunni Seljuks. The Fatimids took Baghdad from the Seljuks in 1058, although the city was quickly recovered by the Seljuks the next year. Thereafter, the Seljuks' main objective was to rid Syria and the Levant of the Fatimids. The Seljuk Empire was balanced precariously on a paradox. Its military strength depended on the Turkmen tribesmen. And yet these nomads had no interest in empire building. They disliked Tugril's gentrification when he renounced the nomadic way of life in favour of the sophisticated and literate court in Baghdad. They disliked it even more when Arab poets praised him in a language which neither they nor he could understand. But most of all, the Turkmen hated the arid Iraqi countryside, which was unsuitable for their flocks. Tugrul knew that to survive, he had to manage the conflicting needs of the Turkmen and the Caliph in Baghdad. His power depended on the military might of the Turkmen, but their raiding and pillaging was not tolerated by the Caliph. Indeed, the Caliph regularly protested about their unruly behaviour in the Iraqi countryside outside Baghdad. To retain the caliph's support, 
Tugrul had to withdraw the Turkmen completely from Baghdad in 1057. He needed grazing lands suitable for the millions of Turkmen sheep, and he needed cities that they could pillage and burn. Where could he take them? The answer was Byzantine Armenia. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we'll look at the first fighting between the Byzantines and the Seljuk Turks in Armenia. This was the prelude to a major war that would culminate in the Battle of Manzikert and ultimately lead to the First Crusade. Thanks for listening.